We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. Joe Biden and the radical left, along with Chuck Schumer, they fail to get enough votes in the United States Senate, which is controlled by Democrats, to even bring to a vote the Women's Health Protection Act, which is otherwise known as the Abortion on Demand until the point of birth act. I'll talk about this and more on today's rebellion. Good morning and welcome to the rebellion. Thanks so much for listening in. Today's topic is abortion. Abortion, that's what it's about. It's not about women's health. It's not about protecting that. It's not about choice. Today's topic is about abortion, aborting a child. And what do you do when you abort a child? You kill it. You kill it. You terminate it. It's a living thing. It has arms and hands and lungs. It has kidneys. It has a beating heart. And you're going to terminate it. That means you're stopping all those functioning organs from doing what they're supposed to do. Now, how else can you define that other than you're killing that thing that had all of those functioning body parts of what comprise a human being, a living human being. So when we are talking about this subject, let's just cut to the chase. Let's not let progressives turn definitions upside down and talk about uh, health and protecting women's health or pro-choice. No, what we're talking about is aborting children, children that otherwise would live if you didn't intervene and abort them i.e. kill them. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. And Remember the previous shows when we've talked about the definition of words and why definitions matter. Words matter. Ideas matter. That's why we need to define, properly define, this Women's Health Protection Act as what it really is. It's a piece of pro-abortion legislation that would codify into law Roe v. Wade, in a way that it's never been done before, and I'll explain to you what I mean by that. This is really a bill that should be titled, if it were accurately labeled, the Abortion on Demand Until Birth Act, because that's exactly what it's about. Let's take a break, and when I get back, I'm going to give you an overview of what a couple news sources are saying about this. And then I'm going to review a lengthy description of this particular act and what happened in the Senate yesterday, which we should applaud, I might add. I'll give you a teaser there. And we should thank Joe Manchin again. I'll give you another teaser there. I'm going to talk about this act from the context of the Family Research Council's description of it. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. So yesterday, and again, if this, uh, if this show is being listened to via podcast a couple days after it aired on KOKL Radio, 
This is um, a show that I'm doing on Tuesday. Tuesday, March 1st. So yesterday, the last day of February, the Senate failed, failed to invoke cloture and proceed to a vote on the Women's Health Protection Act. Now, what does that mean? It means that they failed to get the necessary 60 votes, okay? The rules of the Senate would have called upon them to get 60 votes to proceed to bring this legislation to a vote. And they didn't even get 50. Now, the Democrats control everything right now. Remember that. They control everything. They control all of the Congress, the House and the Senate. They control the White House. Now, you could argue that they don't control the Supreme Court. I was going to say they control all three branches of the federal government. Somebody would have quickly said, no, they don't. They don't control the Supreme Court because you all have a conservative majority in the Supreme Court. Sometimes I wonder about that. Sometimes I wonder whether we really do have control, conservative control of the Supreme Court. We'll set that aside for the minute, for the moment, because we can hope and pray that the Supreme Court will do the right thing on this issue. Uh, we'll talk further about that. And if they do, again, I'll say thank you, Donald Trump, for appointing the justices that you did while you were in office. I'm sick and tired of people calling me a blind Trumper when I say something positive about Donald Trump, by the way. This is a rabbit trail, but I had somebody challenge me on Facebook the last couple days because I wasn't being critical enough of Donald Trump. And I said, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? They were, they were angry with me because I was blaming Joe Biden for the situation in the Ukraine right now and his feckless leadership and the fact that he doesn't know what he's doing and that his weakness invites aggression. And this person on Facebook challenged me and said, well, what about the preceding president and presidents? They're responsible for this too. And I said, how can you possibly, how can you possibly claim that Donald Trump is responsible or for that matter, for that matter, uh, Bill Clinton or the Bushes? How can you claim that they're responsible for Biden's feckless leadership and his weakness that is inviting aggression around the world? I mean, Afghanistan, the Ukraine, and mark my words, China's watching too. Taiwan is in great, great jeopardy right now. I'm going to go on record right now saying Taiwan will be invaded by China. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't China invade Taiwan? They know Joe Biden has no spine and that the Democrats have no spine. They are watching the American people as to whether or not we have the spine and the courage and the tenacity the moral conviction to defend freedom. They don't think we do. They know our White House doesn't. That's why this stuff is happening. And you're going to blame Donald Trump? Now, you can be critical of a thousand different things that Donald Trump has done. And I have said on this show stuff that some of you listeners don't like because you think I'm too critical of him. I'm damned if I do, and I'm damned if I don't. I mean, if I say, thank you, Donald Trump, for supporting my religious freedom, I get some Never Trumper out there, like this person that was challenging me yesterday on Facebook, who says, well, you're too soft on Trump. I'm thanking him for defending my religious freedom, which he did. I mean, he, he may be a bore. He may be a misogynist. He may use language I don't appreciate. He may have inflated our national debt more than he should have. And again, some of you Trumpers out there are uncomfortable that I just said that. But my land, conservatives should be honest. Honest people. We should thank 
people when they're right and criticize them when they're wrong. And Donald Trump was right on religious freedom, and I'm grateful for it. He was also right, by and large, on the pro-life issue. Now, some might say that we didn't gain that much ground, that we still were funding abortions. And there's truth in that. There's truth in that. I'm not saying that Donald Trump did enough, but what I am saying is he leaned strongly publicly in favor of states making decisions on abortion, putting authority back into the state, back into the local community, back into the hands of the people to make a decision about this thing. And he also spoke aggressively about the value of human life, and I'm thankful for that. Could he have done more? Yes. Should he have done more? Probably so. But was he better than the alternative? Absolutely. Absolutely, and I'm grateful for that. Anyway, I'm on a rabbit trail right now. I need to talk about this bill. But I think it's important to talk about the context of leadership that leads up to these bills. This stuff didn't happen while Donald Trump was in office. Not only did the Ukraine, excuse me, not only did the Ukraine not get invaded, or anybody else for that matter, there were no wars started on Donald Trump's watch. There may be a reason for that. There may be a reason. It may be that our enemies perceived us as being a people of strength, a government of strength, a presidency of strength, somebody that was willing to fight, whereas now they do not see that. Likewise, these pro-abortion proponents, they don't think anybody's going to stand in their way. They tried to get this bill to go through, and frankly, this bill is just as bad as the war in Ukraine because it is going to result, if it would have, excuse me, if it would have passed, it would have resulted in probably more deaths than the war in Ukraine. And we cannot turn a blind eye to that. So this bill, this bill would have um, nullified, it would have nullified state pro-life laws across the country. All of the pro-life laws in Texas or, or, or anywhere else that you live would have been nullified if this bill had passed. And it failed to pass. It failed to pass. They only got 46 votes. Now, I want you to remember how many votes, how many votes the Senate has, how many Democrat votes the Senate has. They've got 50, and they only got 46, 46 Democrats to sign on to this thing. Now, they needed 60 in order to get it, um, to, to get it beyond the point of conversation and debate to the point of an actual vote. So they failed to get enough votes to bring it forward so that it could be voted on as official legislation and law for the United States. It added to the law of the land as an official act, which would have been the first time that had happened. Now, the Supreme Court has ruled on this back in 1973, Roe v. Wade, but the legislature has never codified this as official law of the land and therefore made it impossible for other states, for the states, not other states, for the states to have their own restrictions, their own regulations on abortion, such as what's happening in Mississippi, what's happening in Texas, other states across the land. So why did it fail? Well, one of the reasons it failed is because some spineless spineless uh, senators on both sides of the aisle didn't show up to vote. Notice that the vote is 46-48. Well, where were the other people? Well, they didn't want to raise their hand and vote. And that's That's shameful. Tells you who these people really are. Um, But the 
guy that did vote that we should be thankful for. Again, thanking when he's right, criticizing when he's wrong. He's wrong on much, but he's right on some things right now, and that's Joe Manchin of West Virginia. He voted against the bill. He voted. He didn't, he didn't run. He didn't turn tail and run. He voted, and he voted against the bill. He stood with the Republicans. And even some moderate Republicans like Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska actually voted, voted against the bill. Again, I'm critical of them in many ways because they, they are pro-choice and they've voted, they have voted for pro-choice legislation in the past, but they recognize that this thing was awful and they voted against it. Schumer tried to ram it through. Now, again, they're calling it, they're calling it the Women's Health Protection Act, which is a misnomer. It's Orwellian. It's doublespeak. It's the exact opposite. It's really the Abortion on Demand Until Birth Act, and that's what the Family Research Council has called it. This, uh, this legislation, um, if it were signed into law, like I said, would become the first ever piece of federal legislation legalizing, making it law, the killing of an unborn child up until the point of birth. Now, that's the thing I want to zero in on right now, up until the point of birth. Two seconds, one second, a nanosecond before birth, you can kill it. I'm serious. Now, what's the definition of birth? The baby is completely on its own. It has exited the womb, the birth canal, and the baby is now in the doctor's hands. That's birth. So if the baby is partially born, then partial birth abortion is okay because up until the moment of birth is what the language of this bill included. Partial birth abortion would have become the law of the land. And fortunately, we have enough people that have at least a modicum of conscience left that they voted against this. Now, the interesting thing that I want you to hear here is that currently... Okay, this is a statistical fact, and people don't want to talk about it, at least on the left. And we don't hear enough about it, even on the right. Currently, only 17% of Americans, 17%, fewer than 2 out of 10 Americans agree that abortion should be available to a woman anytime she wants it. Did you hear that? We are not nearly as pro-choice as... NBC Today and MSNBC and CBS and ABC and all of the mainstream media keep telling you fewer than two out of 10 Americans think abortion should be available to a woman anytime she wants it. So fewer than two out of 10 Americans would have supported or agreed with this radical legislation, but they were ramming it through anyway because the same reason they're ramming through everything else, from COVID policy to religious freedom issues or lack thereof, uh, school choice issues. Everything that's coming out of the progressive administration is, is totally disrespectful of the will of the people because you're too stupid to know how to run your own life, you know. You're a deplorable, you're a rube, you lack gray matter, you're downstream, you really don't understand. I mean, that's what they think of you. That's what you, they think of you. You've got the ruling class, the ruling party, if you will, and then you've got the country class and the country party. And anybody who lives in the country is too stupid. You're not, 
you're not sophisticated enough to understand that we should have the right to kill our children up until up until a second before birth, or even during the birth process, we can kill that child and sacrifice it to the God of convenience. Because we find that child to be disruptive to our lives. That child is gonna make us uncomfortable. It's gonna cost us money. It's gonna put us in a situation where we can't do the things we want to do. So we should have the right to protect our comfort, our recreation, our lifestyle, our pocketbook, and just kill people that compromise any of those things. Regardless of their age, we should be able to terminate them. And especially, we'll start with the youngest among us because they can't defend themselves very well yet, can they? That's what this is all about. Now, I want to remind you, I want to remind you that I used to be on the other side of the fence. Some of you who listen to the show haven't heard this story yet. I used to be pro-choice in the sense that my first job out of college was to serve as a campaign manager for a Republican state representative who was pro-choice. I was her campaign manager because she was Republican, but she was running against a Democrat who was a good Catholic and therefore pro-life. And I actually parroted my candidate's position as I went door to door and as I engaged in debate with people that were asking questions about her. And I said, well, my candidate doesn't believe in abortion. She just doesn't believe in legislating morality. I said it over and over again. And that is such a vacuous statement. It's, it's, it's nonsense. It, frankly, it's crap. It makes no sense. You're not going to legislate morality. All legislation assumes some sort of moral standard. I don't care if it's a speed limit. It assumes a moral standard. You're legislating morality because you're suggesting that it's immoral to drive 100 miles an hour through town because you might kill people. It's dangerous. And the assumption that you shouldn't kill people by being dangerous and irresponsible is a moral assumption. Do you get my point? All legislation, all laws are predicated on some understanding of what's moral and immoral. Laws against stealing, laws against speeding, laws against trespassing. The list goes on and on. All of these laws, minor though they may be in some people's opinions, are all predicated on the issue of some sort of moral assumption on how we should live together with one another, respecting other people's privacy, respecting other people's security, respecting other people's freedom. This is all a moral conversation. So don't tell me that we're not supposed to legislate morality. That's a ruse, that's a, that's a, that, that's a false claim that we need to set aside. I used to make it and I was wrong, I was stupid. So this issue that's before us right now, yeah, it's a moral issue. Sure, it's a moral issue. The discussion of when people should live and when they should die is certainly a moral issue. And we shouldn't run away from it when somebody says, well, I don't believe in legislating morality. What the heck are you talking about? Then you don't believe in legislation of any kind if you don't believe in legislating morality. This particular issue, this victory, is pure and simple. It stops people from killing other human beings. And don't tell me that a child isn't a human being before it's actually born. 
In fact, I refuse to talk about saving the lives of the unborn. That's not what this is about. I, I insist on talking about saving the lives of the youngest among us. Because that's, that's, the, that's the fact. Just because a human being hasn't exited the birth canal yet doesn't make it less human. And these people are actually arguing this point. This is what they actually are trying to get you to agree to. They want you to define a human being by its location rather than its ontological reality, other than, rather than what it really is. They're saying that a human being that has moving arms, wiggling fingers, a human being that sucks its thumb, a human being that has functioning kidneys and a beating heart and a working brain, they're saying that a human being that has healthy lungs and a healthy liver, they're saying that a human being with arms and legs and fingers and toes, eyes and a nose and ears, they're saying that this thing that I've just described isn't worthy of your concern, your protection, and does not have the unalienable rights of life and liberty and the fact that we should protect its right to pursue purpose and happiness. They're saying that none of that exists until it moves a mere 24 inches. That it's not human if it's here, but if it moves 24 inches, then all of a sudden it becomes human. That's their argument. That as soon as it moves through the birth canal, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, something magical happens and it turns into a human being where it wasn't before. I mean, I actually had this argument when I became pro-life with a pro-choice student that was under my charge. I've told you the story before. Her name was Jean. She knew that I had become pro-life and that I was defending it accordingly. And one day she was in my office when I was a dean of students at another university up in Michigan, and I, I challenged her, and I said, Jean, are you pro-choice? And she said, yes, woman's right to choose. I said, really? First trimester, woman's right to choose? She said, absolutely. It's none of your business. You stay out of the woman's life. It's her body. I said, okay, cool. Second trimester, woman's right to choose? Absolutely. It's her body. You stay out of her business. It's her right to choose. Okay, great. First trimester, second trimester. How about third trimester? Absolutely. Woman's right to choose. You see her logic here? She doesn't want to back down because if the woman's right to choose is her highest good, her summum bonum, if that's the reason that she's making this argument, then she can't back down because the woman's choice to kill her child doesn't change just because of the age of the child, right? First trimester, second trimester. Now we're in the third trimester. She's saying the exact same thing. Well, as we got to the end of this discussion, I finally pushed her up until the end of the third trimester. And keep in, ma keep in mind, I was doing this back in the 1990s. This conversation I'm sharing with you right now took place uh, around 1993, 94, 95, if I remember correctly. So I said to her, woman's right to choose first trimester, second trimester, third trimester. Good for you, Gene. You're being consistent. Your logic is is tight here. Not too sure I agree with your conclusions, but at least you're being consistent, logical. You're staying on point. How about 30 seconds before birth, the tail end of the third trimester? She looked at me and she said, yep, woman's right to choose. 
She's getting uncomfortable. I know that because she recognizes that her logic is leading to a pretty uncomfortable conclusion. So I said, okay, one last question for you. 30 seconds before birth, Jean? How about 30 seconds after birth? And I actually put a face on this child because we had a student on my campus in a wheelchair. He had cerebral palsy. His name was Phil. I said, let's say 30 seconds after birth, Jean. The mother is told by the doctor that your baby is Phil. Your baby has cerebral palsy. And um, we just want you to know that. I said, Jean, 30 seconds before birth, woman's right to choose. How about 30 seconds after birth with Phil? Do you know what Jean said to me? She looked me in the eye and she said, woman's right to choose. She did. Now, I didn't say anything more. I just looked at her and smiled. You know why? Because Jean's worldview just imploded. She was trying to be logical. She didn't want to use, didn't want to lose, excuse me, did not want to lose the argument with me. And she was logical. She was consistent. If the woman's right to choose trumps all else, then the location of this thing she's choosing to terminate shouldn't matter, right? And if it was not a human being 30 seconds before birth, what all of the, of the sudden changed and made it so, made it human 30 seconds after birth? We've only got 60 seconds in elapsed time. All that changed was location. All that changed was location. And location can't change the reality of whether or not you're human. Jean said it was okay to terminate, to kill Phil 30 seconds after he was born. That's where this Women's Health Act goes. People, if it passes, well, this one won't right now, it's killed, but they won't give up. If this kind of thing becomes law of the land, it will not stop there. Now, don't accuse me of a slippery slope fallacy here. You need to consider the consequences, the momentum, the trajectory of ideas. Where are they going? If it's okay to kill it 30 seconds, one second before it's born, to kill it in the process of being born, then why in the world would it not be okay to do it afterwards if it's not viable, if it's Phil? They will go there. In fact, some of the ethicists are already arguing that that's okay. Peter Singer at Princeton argues that post-birth abortion would be a moral good. If it's Phil. Or if it's someone else. Don't let them argue differently. This pro-choice argument is an anti-human being argument. It's a pro-human sacrifice argument. It degrades women and it destroys children, literally cuts them into pieces, and sells their body parts for research. How dare we suggest that we are a society of justice, social or otherwise, if this is what we hold to be one of our highest ideals. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.